The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work with him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was unable to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to the heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. 
As Peter said, I'm Heath. I'm with RUF. Uh, thanks for having me back. It's always good to be here. Um, like you said, if you have any questions about RUF or what I do at UNCC, I'll be right down here afterwards if you want to get on the mailing list or anything like that. I'd be happy to talk to you. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll dive in. Lord, you tell us that your word is as sharp as any two-edged sword. Would you now pierce us to our heart with it? Would we hear from you? Would you open our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear your word for us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, back around Christmas this last year, we invited two families over to our house, I think on December 27th for dinner. Then one of the families kind of swoops in and invites all of us over to their house for dinner on Christmas Day. So one of these families is going to get to experience what being a guest was like at two different houses in very quick succession. And I don't know about this couple, but when I end up doing something like that, I find it very hard not to compare. So I'm going to pretend to be this third family for a minute, which is hard because they might be sitting in this room. Um, Okay, here we go. One house obviously values music and fun. Then we go to the McLaughlins, and they obviously hate music and just value having their kids' toys all over the house. This dinner was potluck. They like to share. It's a communal thing. At the McLaughlins, they made all the food. Control freaks? I don't actually think this third family thought this way, or at least I hope not, Um, but it is illustrative in that when we experience similar things close together, we can compare them and start to see competing values at work. In our text today, that same thing is going on. We have two feasts, which at first glance seem very, very disconnected. But these two feasts reveal the values of two kingdoms which they represent. Herod's feast represents the kingdom of sinful self, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of death and destruction, while the feeding of the 5,000 represents the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at these two competing kingdoms, these competing feasts, and hopefully see the values of the kingdoms that lie behind them. At the end of the day, the question for us becomes, to which kingdom do we belong? Are we subjects in God's kingdom? Or are we in a kingdom that rebels against God? And to get at this question, I want us to look at three things this morning. Characteristics of the feasts, the results of the feasts, and the kings of the feast. So first, the characteristics. And this is a fairly simple compare and contrast. First, why was each feast prepared? And our text tells us that Herod is basically throwing himself an elaborate birthday party, an elaborate banquet on his birthday. Maybe some of y'all remember the old MTV show, My Super Sweet Sixteen, where these super rich teenage Uh, 15-year-olds throw themselves these sweet 16 parties and they're over the top. 
I mean, that's basically what Herod is doing here. He's like an insecure, selfish teenager throwing himself this blowout bash of a birthday party. Jesus, on the other hand, had actually tried to get away with just himself and the apostles. He'd sent the twelve out before this to preach and to heal, and now they've returned, and Jesus wants just to get away just themselves. I mean, it says they they don't even have time to eat because there are so many people around. And so they try to get away, and they go out, and they get in the boat, and when they land, there are actually thousands of people already there waiting on them. Jesus planned on it being just he and the twelve, but is completely unconcerned about his plans being interrupted. He doesn't selfishly guard them or get angry. I know I often get angry when things don't go the way I've planned. And these interrupters were such bad planners, they didn't even have the foresight to think, hey, I'm going to be out there for a while. Maybe I should take a lunch. So that's who or why each feast was thrown. Now let's ask the question, who attended? Verse 21 tells us that it's the nobles, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. This was the elite, the well-to-do, the rich. Herod's party would have been a who's who of Galilee at that time. Invite only. Just as much about who can't get in as who can. Very exclusive. And if you're anything like me, don't you want to be invited to parties like that? Don't you want to be on the in crowd? Even if you know what goes on. We know Herod's not that great a guy. But now let's look at the feeding of the 5,000. Anybody who wanted to could attend this. Almost everyone except for 12 people were uninvited to this party. Jesus really didn't want anyone but he and the twelve, and then these thousands show up, and Jesus just rolls with it. And do you notice how often Jesus and his plans get interrupted? Like he's trying to walk from one place to another, and somebody's crying out, heal me, heal me, or he stops and talks to him. Or at one point, he's walking through a crowd, and a woman just grabs onto him, and, and she's healed because of it. The sign of true hospitality is not being hospitable when you invite the person. The sign of true hospitality is being hospitable when the uninvited guests show up. And Jesus has 5,000 at least uninvited guests show up. And he doesn't get mad at them for ruining his, his retreat with the apostles. No. Verse 34 says he had compassion on them. These people were not the elite, they were not the inner circle. These were the poor, they were the common people, but Jesus saw their great spiritual need, says he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he welcomes them. The uninvited are welcomed in. And so already at this point, we can see from this feast at least a couple of defining characteristics about Jesus and his kingdom. First, it is wholly other-centered. Jesus cares more about others than he does about himself and his plans. He cares more about their needs than his own. That Jesus' kingdom is a hospitable and a welcoming place. It's full of grace and compassion. The last aspect I want to compare is the entertainment at these feasts. We'll start with Jesus. 
verse 34, even though Jesus had plans for this quiet retreat that's derailed by thousands of people, Jesus, with great patience, grace, and compassion, sits down and He teaches them. The entertainment at this feast is God Himself, Jesus, God's truth and wisdom being taught. We can really only guess what Jesus taught them, but the fact that they were allowed to stay at all would be an object lesson that Jesus and His kingdom cares about people and not just His own agenda. Jesus the King loves people and has compassion on them. Now let's look at Herod's feast and the entertainment there. Verse 22, Herod has his stepdaughter come in and dance for a room of men. And don't think this is like a proud father showing off his cute little daughter, like doing tap or ballet or something like that. This was not chaste or artistic in any way. Uh, The pastor Sinclair Ferguson said this, he described the party as a ghastly drunken orgy. Another commentator said, we can well imagine the erotic and suggestive manner in which the probably half-naked girl danced. The entertainment at this feast is sinful, sexual, and bordering on the incestuous. The kingdom of self and evil that Herod and his feast represent always bend inward towards selfish sin and indulgence in one way or another. So those are some of the characteristics of the feast. But what happens as a result of the feasts? The results couldn't be more different when you look at it. The result of the impromptu feast that Jesus threw was excess, it was abundance, it was satisfaction. And the text talks about how they They were full, how they were satisfied physically. But I have to imagine that they went away spiritually satisfied and refreshed as well. I mean, they were being taught by God Himself. The teaching here at Stonebridge is really good. I love the pastors here. But the teaching that day was perfect full of grace and truth. Just imagine how awesome it would be to have Jesus Himself standing in front of you and teaching you God's Word. It would be unbelievable. And that's what this group got all day long. They left satisfied. Now, flip and let's look at the other feast. Compare that to Herod's feast. What happens as a result of Herod's feast? John the Baptist gets beheaded. Imagine a birthday party that you go to, which you realize was thrown by the insecure birthday boy for himself, and instead of cake and presents as the highlight, there's exotic dancing which leads to a man's death, and then it ends with his bloody head served on a silver platter to a half-naked dancing girl. I've never seen a severed head. I can only imagine that it would be terrible and haunt my sleep and my dreams for weeks and months, maybe years after that. 
But think about it, as the top officials of that area at this point, such a display would be a horrifying reminder of what happens to those who oppose or talk bad to Herod in any way. The characteristic result which defines Herod's kingdom is death and destruction, which perfectly mirrors the result of the kingdom of the world and the self. The Bible says that sin leads to death and destruction and separation from God. And Herod's kingdom embodies that death and destruction perfectly that will come to everyone who is outside of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom leads to the excess of goodness in life, to full stomachs, to no foreboding sense of dread of what might happen if we step out of line. These results are radically different. Death and fear versus satisfaction, life and truth. Our last point to look at is the kings of the feast. So let's start with Herod. Herod is selfish. He is power hungry. He is insecure. He will do whatever it takes to keep himself in power. He will murder an innocent man to protect himself and his wife, who used to be his brother's wife, from public criticism. Herod's kingdom, as harsh and as evil as it is, is merely representative of all kingdoms that rival God's, which began long ago. Way back before Adam and Eve fell, there are only two subjects in God's kingdom. Humans were made to have God as their king. Humans were created for the one true king. But when Adam and Eve fell, when they took that fruit and ate it, they were in essence saying, I want to rule my life. I want to be king or queen of my life. I get to decide, not you. And each of us has followed in their footsteps ever since, setting up our own kingdoms of sin and self. The kingdom of this world is really just a network of competing little kingdoms of every individual on earth set in opposition to other people and against God ultimately. I mean, that is sin, a desire for autonomy from God, a desire to rule ourselves, and it leads to death, destruction, and eternal separation from God. And from that point onward, anyone or everyone that has ever lived has in certain ways, sinful ways, tried to live as ruler of our own lives in defiance of God. Now contrast that with Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never defied God. He was sinless. Jesus cares about everybody else above himself. Jesus' kingdom doesn't bring death and separation from God, but actually life and eternity in God's presence. Jesus as the king doesn't kill to protect himself and his kingdom. Jesus is actually killed on behalf of all of those in his kingdom. 
Jesus actually dies so that we sinners can be brought into His kingdom. We deserve death and punishment for our sin and our rival kingdoms of self. Yet Jesus does not preserve Himself, but gives of Himself, is punished in our place to bring us into the kingdom that we were made for under the rule of God. The kings of these kingdoms could not be more different. But the question that we began with remains, to which kingdom do we belong? Let me say this. If we would call ourselves Christians and say that we're a part of God's kingdom, we are not wholly consistent here. There are areas in each of our lives in which we maintain our own kingship and we say, no, 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 no. I'm ruling here. It could be our kids. It could be our jobs, sexuality, money, relationships, almost anything where we say, no, no, God, I'm going to rule. I'm in charge. I don't want you interfering. For me, even as a pastor, it can often be my job. I can speak in public, okay. I can put together a sermon. I know how to do that. I can, I can make a Bible study. I can meet with students. But often I can function almost entirely just from my gifts and what I can do instead of trusting God with my work in any way, shape, or form. And so what is it with us that we hold on to so tightly that it can't be pried from our hands? And I, I want to make this very clear. If, if you're not a believer, if you're here visiting, I am not saying God's kingdom is in this building. All the good people are in here and all of the evil people are outside. I want you to understand that this line goes right through the heart of each and every one of us. There are aspects for everyone in this room and outside that would call themselves Christians where we are not under God's kingdom. We are not under His rule and reign. Abraham Kuyper, an old Dutch theologian, said it very well. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Jesus Christ wants all of us, every single aspect of what is in us, of our lives under His domain, our jobs, sexuality, our money, our kids, relationships, whatever it is, Jesus Christ wants to be Lord and King over it all. And from our passage, we see that Christ welcomes us into His kingdom of grace and compassion, love, truth, even into intimacy and relationship with Himself. In closing, I want to tell you a story from when we lived in Greenville, South Carolina. There was a Scottish festival that happened every year, and if you don't know what that is, they basically throw rocks 
and cabers, which is Scottish apparently for telephone pole. Um, the Friday before it started this one year, there was a parade down Main Street in Greenville. And this particular year, Prince Edward from the English royal family was actually there. And according to the Google, he is apparently ninth now in line to the throne. And so Prince Edward is there, and as the parade goes down Main Street, Prince Edward is sitting in this beautiful blue and silver Rolls-Royce convertible, like waving to the crowd as he drives, or as someone drives him down Main Street. And then someone in the crowd yells out, three cheers for the prince. Now keep in mind, this is South Carolina. Maybe one of the most freedom-loving, conservative, gun-toting states in the USA. Maybe the least likely group of people to show genuine welcome to a member of the English royal family. So this person shouts out three cheers for the prince. Hip, hip. And then everyone in the crowd, in unison, joins in. Hooray! Hip, hip! Hooray! Hip, hip! Hooray! This man wasn't a king. He's not really even that close to the throne. But there is something about kingship and royals that fascinate us. And they fascinate us because we were created by God to be His subjects. We were born to live under the loving, kind, gracious, benevolent kingdom of God, the King and Creator of the universe. There is something deep within us, even though we rebel against it at one in the same way or at the same time, there is something deep within us that longs for this one true king that we were made to serve. We long to be his subjects again, so we have this fascination. That's why we love stories about good kings. That's why we love Aragorn and Lord of the Rings. King Arthur, Aslan, even Mufasa and Simba from The Lion King. We love good kings because we were made for the best king. The invitation as we close this morning is very simple. Come into the kingdom of Jesus. Maybe for the very first time. But if we've been Christians for a long time, we still need to think about, pray about, maybe ask other people to root out those areas in our lives that we just hold on to so tight where we want to rule and we tell God, no, this is mine. For those who are in the kingdom of God, the promise is that at the very end, there's going to be a giant party. That the end of Revelation, Revelation ends with this giant feast that's going to put the two from our text to shame. We will eat and we will drink and we will celebrate all in the very presence of the King Himself, God, and it's going to be awesome. So who is our King? To which kingdom do we belong?
Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a king who loves us so much that he came down and died for us. God, we would be so bold as to pray that you would bring people into your kingdom this morning, that they would bow the knee to you. Lord, for those of us who would call ourselves yours, that would say we are in your kingdom, would we help, would you help us bow our knee to you in all areas of our lives? We thank you for our precious King Jesus, for his life and his death on our behalf and his resurrection. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.